For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we're a bit past Christmas, but I was reflecting on how sometimes our popular or uh, cultural conceptions of Christmas don't always line up with like the region in which we find ourselves. So I have some friends in Australia, and uh, Christmas falls there not in the bleak midwinter, but in the heat of summer. So Santa doesn't need a big red coat, he needs board shorts. Or when I was growing up in Southern California, I never dreamed of a white Christmas. That would be a traffic nightmare. People in Los Angeles have no idea how to drive in the rain. I mean, snow would have just paralyzed the region. Or even sometimes here in the Midwest, I get a bit confused about how we're supposed to go tell it on the mountain when there's no mountains here. <laughs> go tell it on the sledding hill doesn't have the same kind of ring. But despite the fact that there aren't any mountains here, I'd like to think with you a bit this morning about this idea of going and telling it everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. Because one of the themes that uh, emerges from our readings and colics this epiphany season is, is the importance of evangelism, of, of sharing the good news about the birth of Christ with the world. This news is news for all people in all places and at all times. And for us, telling this good news is a natural outflow of our having believed and received this good news ourselves. I think our colic this week helpfully captures this epiphany theme and its, its logical or, or its, its perhaps theological flow. Feel free to take a glance at it. Even the first clause is like packed with thematic significance. Jesus is here named as Son, Savior, Christ, and the Light of the World. These are all rich and deep and, and familiar names of Jesus that we've been seeing recurring in our readings throughout uh, Christmas. This year on Christmas Eve, we read from John 1 as our, as our birth narrative, with its naming of Jesus as the Word, the Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and in this Word was life. The life uh, was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This true light, Christ the Word, which enlightens everyone, comes into the world in the Word made flesh. God and man made manifest, as we sing sometimes in Epiphany. And even God's own Son is named here. The Word is God's Son. Hebrews 1 reminded us that the clearest, even brightest revelation of God in the world is God's Son, the light of the world. And then John, uh, the Gospel of John continues in our reading today, as we saw this wedding uh, at Cana narrative which picks up the story of Jesus' life that we started on Christmas Eve, which is a bit anomalous, too, as a biography goes. I mean, the Gospel of John is a little bit different than we see in the Synoptic Gospels in telling the story of Jesus' life. It's not exactly as you would expect it. After this cosmic opening, the Gospel of John turns to highlight John the Baptist, John the Forerunner, as the Orthodox say. But here, John the Forerunner in, in the Gospel of John seems sometimes even more perplexing than he is in the synoptics. John sort of like enters into the scene and just blurts, uh, blurts out, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And then the action quickly pivots to Jesus calling these five random guys, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and telling them to follow him. And then they do. And then they go to this wedding with Jesus' family, and they run out of wine, and Jesus turns like 150 gallons of water into wine. That's a crazy story so far. But I think the payoff comes at the end of what we heard today, 
the end of this narrative where the text says, regarding the disciples, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cain of Galilee, and he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. What they believe? I think they believe that he indeed was the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the Savior, the light who has come into the world. Which is very good news, one that the disciple, good news that the disciples might want to tell to others. It would be natural for them, as they did later on in their lives, to go tell the news always and everywhere. And I think we see something similar in our reading from Isaiah 62, the same kind of dynamic. In verse 2, the prophet states that the work God has done for his people will be told across the world. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. This is the righteousness and the glory of God's people as God has delivered them from the hands of their enemies, which is good news. And the prophet declares that he's not going to keep silent. He's not going to keep quiet for this good news demands to be told. Likewise, I think we see something conceptually similar in our collect again, stating that Christ may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. There's this natural flow from embracing the good news of the good work that God has done to proclaiming it to the ends of the earth. Here again, these sections even from our psalm. Sing unto the Lord and praise his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his honor to the nations and his wonder to all peoples. Tell it out among the nations. The Lord is king. It is he who has made the world so firm that it cannot be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. There might be a bit of poetic hyperbole here, but clearly the psalmist is like excited about God and excited about what God has done, and he can't help but sing about it and tell it out. And I think here for us then lies a lesson in evangelism. The psalmist here isn't issuing some kind of like judgmental directive, like evangelize, you aren't a good Christian, or if you haven't shared your faith, you're doing a bad job. Rather, for the psalmist, the, the proclamation of the good news just flows out of a recognition and an appreciation and a meditation on who God is and what God has done. There are, there are imperatives here. Tell his salvation, declare his honor, tell it out. But it also has the imperatives, sing unto the Lord, praise his name. And it seems to me this isn't something the psalmist is envisioning that you have to like muster up the strength to do, or it's some task you have to work really hard by the force of your will to execute. Meditation on the reality of who God is and what God has done will naturally pour out into this desire to sing praises and tell everyone about it. And I think that's where the sort of logic of the collect comes back in. The collect doesn't mandate that we Christians demand that the people of the world know, worship, and obey God. Rather, look at what the request actually is in the collect. What's the petition? What are we really asking for in this prayer? The request is this. May we shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. That's it. That's the request. Dear God, may we shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. I think that's a prayer I don't pray very often, but maybe should. Dear God, thanks for this food. Thanks for this day. May I shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. Amen. But that's what this colleague asks, asks for. And if we do, if we do shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, then God will be known and worshipped and obeyed to the ends of the earth. 
It's, it's almost like that's a secondary effect that flows from our shining with the radiance of Christ's glory. Telling the world about the good things that God has done flows naturally from shining with this radiance. But maybe, perhaps, you know, we aren't always feeling very shiny these days. You know, if, if you aren't feeling shiny, you're not feeling like you're reflecting the radiance of Christ's glory, then a, a call to evangelize or a call to proclaim the good news about the reality of God might feel like some sheer, thankless act of will. Last week, Joel alluded to the, the post-holiday malaise that sometimes uh, afflicts us, and maybe the, the cold season, COVID season, or any other of life's challenges might have taken off the shine of our radiance a bit. Well, what then? How do we get that shiniest, shiniest that'll lead to telling it out among the nations? Well, I think there is a bit of a, an inherent or an implicit prescription here in this collect as well. Note this part of the prayer. Grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. I think that's the prescription there. If you're looking to shine with the radiance of Christ's glory so that the whole world will know, worship, and obey God, then we need to be illuminated by the word and by the sacraments. Now, that's not terribly revolutionary. It's not some secret formula for evangelism. It, it's quite simple. Be illuminated by scripture and sacraments. But you might ask why. Why does that work? What's the connection between being illuminated by word and sacrament and telling it out among the nations? Well, think back to the psalm. What is it that's got the psalmist so excited that, that he wants to sing about? It's God's salvation. It's God's honor. It's the wonders God has done. It's God's kingship. It's God's work in making the world. These are the, the mighty and amazing things that God has done. When we're confronted with scripture, we're, we're confronted with all the great things that God has done in the world. Whether we're hearing scripture here in church or reading it for ourselves or studying it with our house group, meditating on it in that quiet space, immersing ourselves in scripture is immersing ourselves in recalling all these wonderful things that God has done. And scripture tells us that God has made the entire universe, that God has called people into a special relationship with him. That even though the world feels scary and dangerous and even threatening at times, God's taking care of us and has ultimately been victorious over the evil of this world. These are the mighty and amazing things that God has done. And when we're confronted with scripture, we're continually reminded of all this good news. And if we do actually believe and receive these wondrous things that God has done, we're naturally going to desire to tell others about it. And likewise, too, do I think the sacraments uh, illuminate us. In one sense, the sacraments are, are like physical embodiments of these mighty acts of God that we ourselves get to participate in. Think about something like baptism. One of the mighty acts that God has done is that we've been saved from sin and death. And we who are God's people are no longer destined for eternal death, but on, are on a trajectory to eternal life. And that's what baptism shows forth. As Paul talks about in Romans 6, we have died and been buried with Christ in baptism. And so we are joined with him in his resurrection. 
we have that holy water font there at the entrance to our nave where we do our baptisms, and that, that itself is a tangible reminder that we who have been baptized have in fact died, been buried, and been raised to eternal life with Christ. The sacraments call us to remember that, to be illuminated by that, to recall the great things that God has done. So if we're feeling a bit less shiny these days, less radiating with Christ's glory than we'd like, and say, let us be illuminated by scripture and the sacraments. I'd, I'd love for us to be saturated in word and sacraments, to be marinated and immersed in, in word and sacraments. And as we become more and more convinced that the little baby asleep in the hay is the word made flesh, God's son, and the savior of the world. I hope we get more and more excited about these truths, and then as a natural consequence, tell it out to those around us. Tell it out on the mountain and the sledding hill and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. Amen.